0: All right, keep your prayer sheets handy. But now open your Bibles to the third book, the book of Leviticus. Now, I don't mean to pick on Andrew, but I will. Now, the book of Leviticus is often, um, I want to say it's, it's undervalued, or we don't see it as... as um, something that's worth spending a lot of time studying and it also has has a reputation for being a bible reading plan killer. Now Andrew had a had an awesome reading plan that he suggested to us back when he preached on Exodus, right? Pre- reading the whole bible in 20 days. Very ambitious. But I noticed and I even I went back and and listened to the first part of his sermon. He said he stopped after Exodus. He didn't say that it was Leviticus that that threw him off. But I'm just inferring that if he finished Exodus, he probably looked at Leviticus and thought, you know what, let's just call this off. But uh, that has happened to many of us. Uh, and I know that oftentimes if you do follow a Bible reading plan and you get to the book of Leviticus, it's hard. It can be difficult to start reading these laws and to just get, you kind of get uh bored with it, to be honest. And it gets to be almost like the same thing, repetition over and over. And so it's hard for us to understand. And that's part of the reason why it's, uh, it's, it's misunderstood. I think the other main reason is because of the genre of the book, right? The, the genre of the book of Leviticus is mostly law. Okay, And I don't think there's a single person in this room who's going to go home tonight or after a long day of work and going to snuggle up on the couch and open up a book of law and just start reading. Okay, That's just not our preferred genre to, or for relaxing or, or really for anything, right? unless you're a lawyer or you know, you're really, really into that thing. Law is hard for us to really get into. And because Leviticus is a book mostly of law, it's that way for us. Another reason that Leviticus is so difficult for us is because the cultural setting of Leviticus is so very different from our cultural setting in 2022. I mean, it is vastly different. And so when we start to read it, it can be really hard for us to understand why these things are significant and why it matters because it's so different from us. But our call to worship was just one verse tonight. And it was Psalm 119, verse 97, which says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, the psalmist obviously understands the cultural context of Leviticus, but the psalmist also says, I love your law. Now, that includes more than just Leviticus, but it absolutely includes Leviticus. Leviticus. And so if the psalmist can say, I love your law, and more than that, it is my meditation all the day, then we have to understand that there is value in studying the law that God gave. The book of Leviticus in its, in its context of the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When you start to see it in its context of the Pentateuch, it helps to, to make more sense of it. But then, even as you zoom out from there and you see the greater context of the Old Testament, you will see the significance of Leviticus. But then, even when you zoom out further and then you start looking at the New Testament, you will see even more so how the setting of Leviticus and how the content of Leviticus helps us make sense of even the New Testament, which is really awesome. We tend, as Christians, to go straight to the Gospels and straight to Jesus, and that's good and we should, But much of what we read in the Gospels is very much so influenced by what we read in Leviticus. You read about Jesus cleansing the lepers, and he immediately tells them to go and present themselves to the priests to show themselves as clean. Well, the reason he tells them to do that is because that's prescribed in the law in Leviticus. And the reason that he and his disciples keep the feasts are because these things are written here in Leviticus. And so these are the things that Israel would have been so familiar with, that they would have known very well, and it, it absolutely affected every aspect of their life. And so for all of those reasons, I want us to understand that the book of Leviticus is very, very important. Uh, commentator Alan Ross said this. He says, it must be recognized that Leviticus was and is one of the most important books of the Old Testament. It not only presents the entire religious system of ancient Israel, but it also lays the theological foundation for the New Testament teaching about the atoning work of Jesus Christ. You know, we talk a lot about Jesus being our sacrifice. Well, how do we understand what the purpose and the meaning of sacrifice is? Well, it's explained to us in the law. It's explained to us in Leviticus. And so... The first thing and the main thing that I want us to see as we study the book of Leviticus are three words. Okay, I want you to write these down or try really hard to remember them. Okay, What I want you all to see when you leave tonight, I want you to know this thing. God is holy. God is holy. Okay, The main emphasis of Leviticus is that God is holy. And we're going to see that. Now, it's important also that we understand the meaning of the word holy. Okay, holy by itself means to be set apart or to be distinct. Okay, so God is clearly set apart, He is distinctly different from anything else or anyone else. And because God is holy, God requires that His people be holy. Okay, Maybe the most important verse that you should know is Leviticus 19, verse 2. It says, I, the Lord your God, am holy. I'm sorry, I flipped it around. It says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So because God is holy, because he is set apart, his people also must be set apart and must be holy. And that is what we see here in the book of Leviticus. Now, a little bit of setting, just so we understand uh, why this book happens where it happens, okay? At the end of Exodus, we have all these instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And if you've ever read Exodus, right, you get into your reading plan, you're feeling good, you get through the actual Exodus and you're real excited, and then you get to the building of the tabernacle and then you start to feel what you're gonna feel as you read the entirety of Leviticus, right? You're like, wow, why does this matter at all? But at the end of Exodus, they actually build the tabernacle and so look back, this should be the facing page in your Bible, Uh, Exodus chapter 40. And look at verses 34 and 35. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, so the tabernacle has been completed. God's glory has now come to dwell in the tabernacle. And as a result, Moses cannot go into the tent of meeting because God's glory is there and because he is sinful. Now look at verse one of Leviticus chapter one. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Okay, so what's happening in Leviticus chapter one, verse one is that Moses is not in the tent with God. Moses is outside because he cannot be inside because unholy people or sinful people cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so what you're gonna see throughout the book of Leviticus is how can God graciously dwell a holy God among sinful people? How can a holy God dwell among sinful people? Okay, So herein, we get to the book of Leviticus and it's, an, it's gonna answer this main question. So uh, I actually have a, a picture. Marshall, can you put that up on the screen? All right, so it's helpful for us to see the structure of Leviticus. Now, this is just something I put together. It's, it's not super fancy, and if it doesn't make any sense, I'm sorry. But what you see here is that there are three main sections of the book, okay? There are rituals, okay? And so at the beginning of the book, you've got chapters 1 through 7 deal with the rituals of sacrifice, And then towards the end of the book, you've got the rituals of feasts. And these are the specific feasts that the Israelites are to keep. And so those are almost like the bookends uh, of the book, right? You've got a a few chapters right after that where Moses is encouraging the people to be faithful to this covenant. But you've got these two sections, right, that are on both sides of the book that are about rituals. Inside of that, you've got two sections that are specifically about the priests, and so chapters 8 through 10, you've got the ordination of the priests. And so this is when God initially tells the people to ordain uh, Aaron and his sons as the priests. And then in the later chapters, chapters 21 and 22, you have qualifications for who can be a priest and who is allowed to bring sacrifices into the holy place and offer them. Okay, so you've got those two outward sections of ritual. You've got the two intersections of priests. But then inside of that you have another two sections, and these are specifically on purity. okay? The first is ritual purity, okay? And the second being moral purity. So you can kind of see those in the uh, the way that I kind of structured it as a pyramid to see that right in the middle of all these matching sections are two chapters, Leviticus chapter sixteen and seventeen. And both of those chapters are specifically explaining one of those feasts that the Israelites are to take, take, a, take hold of or to participate in every year. And that is the day of atonement. So we have two chapters that are that are devoted to this one feast, and it's significant, and I think maybe you are starting to understand why that's significant, but I'll explain that here in just a bit. So I want us to look at all these different sections, the rituals, the priests, and the purity, and you will begin to see, why this book is pointing us to the fact that God is holy, okay? Because remember, the initial initial issue is God is dwelling in the tabernacle in the midst of sinful people, and sinful people cannot dwell with a holy God and survive. So here is God's way of dealing with it. So the first seven chapters, like I said, deal with rituals, and, and in this, these first seven chapters deal specifically with offerings, okay, or sacrifices. Uh, now, sacrifices, uh, there are two, two main types, okay? There are, well, there's five sacrifices total, but they break down into two types, okay? The first are ways to thank God, okay? So these would be grain offerings and peace offerings. So these are ways that we uh, bring a sacrifice to the Lord as a way of saying thank you, We thank God for his provision. And so it was important that the Israelite people were constantly reminded that God is the one who provides for them, and so they bring a portion of what God has provided and give it back to him in a sacrifice as a way of saying thank you. So those are your grain and your peace offerings. The other three are ways of saying I'm sorry, okay, or or, uh, admitting our guilt. Those three are the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, okay? So these chapters are very bloody. You're gonna see just a hint of this here in a minute. But what's happening in these three types of sacrifices, these are the Israelites admitting that they do not belong in God's holy presence because they have sinned, but yet God is, provi- God is gracious in providing a way for them to be made clean or for them to be made right and it's through a sacrifice of an animal. Whereas the animal bears the penalty for the person's sin and the person's guilt, and the person then is then able to be in God's presence. So look with me at Leviticus chapter 4, and we'll see just a little bit of this. Chapter 4 verse 2 says this. Well, we'll start in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done and does any one of them, it is, uh, if it is the anointing priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Now this is a offering that was to be given to the Lord for unintentional sins, okay? So what God is saying is if you have committed a sin, you didn't realize it right away, but it was brought to your attention or you realized it later, then you realize your guilt and you need to bring an offering to the Lord to to, one, acknowledge that you are wrong and that you have sinned and done what is not right, but two, to experience God's grace in that God is being gracious to allow you to offer this sacrifice so that you can be made right okay now there's a lot of other examples and a lot of them deal with unintentional sins some of them deal with intentional sins but a lot of these are are issues of people sinning not obeying the law in the way that they should and then when they realize that they've sinned they offer the sacrifice and so again I think a lot of people don't understand that this is a gracious thing or they don't see it as a gracious thing because it seems like this is so bloody and so messy. There's blood being poured out, blood being sprinkled, uh, all kinds of stuff. But this is God's gracious way of allowing sinful people to be in his presence. He graciously allows something else to die in your place so that you can be in his presence. Okay? So those are the, the ritual or the sacrifices. Okay? The sacrifice rituals. Okay? Okay? Now, we get down to the end of the book and you've got the annual feasts. So this is the other type of ritual that God is asking the Israelites to continually perform. And there are seven of these feasts that are to be observed over and over again. They are the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, which we know is very important, we'll talk about again here in a minute, and the Feast of Booths. Now, the purpose of these annual feasts is to be a continual, a continual reminder of who the Israelites are and who God is. Now, the Passover is a big one. We're familiar with the Passover, hopefully. We just read about it, uh, well, it's been a month now, but Exodus detail, uh, tells us all about the Passover and how God delivered his people from Egypt and the tenth of the ten plagues was that God killed the firstborn of all the families in Egypt, unless you took the blood of the lamb and put it over your doorpost and the angel of death would pass over your house and your child would be spared. And so this was a feast that they would celebrate every year. And as they did it, they would be reminded that they are the people of God. But they would also be reminded that God is a deliverer and that God is a savior and that he is gracious in passing over their their families because of the blood on the doorpost. And so these were important that God desired that his people would continually have these feasts, these seven feasts every year, to remember who they are as God's chosen people and to remember who God is as their Savior. Now, we may think that keeping things like this sound a little strange or odd, but the reality is we do this too. Uh, We have specific Christian holidays like Christmas that not only Christians celebrate, but really the rest of, of the world or most of the world. Uh, But we, we celebrate this every year, we don't think that that's weird, but we have specific ways that we celebrate it, specific things we do to celebrate it, but we don't really think too much about that being like, oh, you know, here's a feast that we have to celebrate, that's too hard. Uh, Or even, you know, thinking outside of Christian holidays, uh, the 4th of July is specific to our country. Uh, And there's no specific way that we are instructed in the Constitution on how to celebrate that. But for whatever reason, we all know to go get fireworks and and cook up some hot dogs. And and that's how we celebrate it. Uh, And so we do things like that as well. So those are the rituals, okay, sacrifices and the feasts that are to be kept. Inside of that, the next section are, are the priests, And we see in chapter 8 that God sets apart Aaron and his sons as priests. You can see him in chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him and as the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So you can see God has called all of this together. There's about to be a a very public uh, ceremony that's gonna happen and God is going to anoint these men as the high priests or as the priests. Now the purpose of the priest is that they would be called to an even higher standard than just the, the normal people of Israel. And their purpose was that they would go to God on behalf of the people and even they would, te- they would go to the people on behalf of God. So they were teaching the people of Israel and they were the ones that the people of Israel would bring their, their offerings to and they would offer it on the altar for the people. So it was an important role. And, and one of the things that God is establishing is that there must be someone who mediates between the people And God, hopefully, you're understanding, starting to, those gospel lights are starting to click in, right? We have a mediator. We don't go directly to God ourselves. We cannot. If we were to go directly into the presence of God, we would die because God is holy and we are sinful. But we also have a mediator. And where do you think that idea of mediation comes from? Well, it comes from God himself. And God establishes that here with the priests here in in Leviticus 8, 9, and 10. Now, there's an interesting story here in Leviticus 10, which we'll look at here in just a minute. So you've got God setting up the priesthood here in these early chapters. But then towards the end of the book, chapters 21 and 22, you have specific rules and regulations about who can be a priest, and we're not going to get into all the specifics of that but god has laid out specific situations in which if if this is true of you you cannot be a priest or you cannot bring sacrifices into the holy place and offer them okay so god has stipulations the the animals that the israelites are to bring for a sacrifice are supposed to be without spot or blemish maybe you've heard that term before God has the same requirement for the priests who are going to bring these sacrifices and offer them in the holy place. The priests themselves physically must be without spot or blemish. And so God lays all of that out uh, in those later chapters. But let's look at chapter 10 because there's an interesting story here and it's about the sons of Aaron. And maybe you've heard this before. His two sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, meet an untimely end, but for a very specific reason. So chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. You see, what happened was these two priests, they went in before the Lord to offer a a sacrifice or they did something that God had not told them to do. Okay, God clearly laid out how the priests were to offer sacrifices and they did not follow his instructions. And as a result, they were struck down. They were killed immediately, which to you and I sounds a little bit extreme, but the reality is, like we said at the beginning, God is holy, and God's holiness will consume sinful people if they do not come into his presence the way he prescribes, and God had laid out how the priests were to bring sacrifice into the holy place, and they did not follow what he had said, and so because they were struck dead. Now, look over at Leviticus chapter 16. This is getting into uh, the Day of Atonement, but we read a little bit more about this, uh, this, what happened here in chapter 10. Verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd and a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. God is reminding Moses to tell Aaron, you don't just come into my presence any way you please. You do not just waltz into the holy place and think that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. God is warning the, Aaron and all the other priests, you come into my presence the way I say to come into my presence, or what happened to Nadab and Abihu will happen to you. You see, this is where we really begin to see that God is holy. And for God who is holy to dwell in a people who are sinful, there are grave consequences if we try and make light of God's presence. If we try and think that it's no big deal for a holy God to dwell among a sinful people, you will find out very quickly that if you don't listen to the Lord, if you try and just go to him any way you want, it will not end well. God is serious about his glory, and God will not allow sinfulness into his presence. And that is the reason he is giving all of these laws in the book of Leviticus so that sinful people can dwell in the midst of a holy God. But you have to listen and obey to what he has said. Now, we move on from the priests and you get to the next intersection, which is purity. And I think this is one that's a little bit more... Uh, Hard to understand for a lot of people, okay? So there's two sections of it. You've got ritual purity and you've got moral purity, okay? So the first chapters, chapters, 15 through, uh, chapters 11 through 15, deal with ritual purity. Now, we talked about ritual at the very beginning, okay? The rituals are bringing sacrifices to the Lord. Now, people would have to do this when they sinned okay, to, so that their sins would be dealt with and they could, be, they could then continue uh, to come into God's presence. But they could not bring these sacrifices to the Lord if they were in a state of impurity or uncleanness, okay? So the, the chapters 11 through 15 deal with this uncleanness. Now, uh, there are a couple things that make someone unclean and that they're explained here uh, in these chapters. So I'll list them out for you. Having a skin disease makes someone unclean. We uh, refer to that as leprosy. It deals specifically with that. Touching of dead bodies or coming into contact with dead bodies would make somebody unclean. Uh, There are contact with reproductive fluids would make somebody unclean. And also, this is where we have the dietary laws of the Old Testament, which a lot of people get confused with, but eating unclean animals. And so in these chapters, God lays out certain animals that are okay to eat and certain animals that are not okay to eat. Now, it does not explain why the clean ones are good to eat and the unclean ones are not good to eat. So we don't have a specific answer for why that might be the case. A lot of people have, have, uh, have come up with theories for why they believe that to be the case, maybe sanitary issues or, or what else. But we don't know. We don't have a very clear answer. But here's what we do know. God had told the people that there are certain things that will make you unclean or impure. Now, it puts you in a state of uncleanness or impurity for a certain amount of time. Okay, And as you read through all of these uh, the impurities you will see that after a certain amount of time, that impurity goes away. Okay, so let's look at an example of this. So chapter 12 deals with purification after childbirth. Chapter 12, verse one says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she, uh, she shall be in.'" she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day of uh, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised and then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Okay, now you can continue reading and it, it gives different time frames for if you bear a female child. But the reality is that you are unclean for a certain amount of time and then once that time passes, you're no longer unclean. So, We need to make sure we understand that being unclean or impure here in Leviticus is not equated with sinfulness. I think a lot of people read in Leviticus that just by having a child you are unclean and think, why is that sinful? Okay, but it did not say that it was sinful. We know that bearing children is a good thing, God Himself told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He repeats that command to, to Noah after the flood and his family, be fruitful and multiply. God wants us to have children. Those are That's a good thing. Okay, so we should not read this and think, oh, it's wrong or sinful to have a child. That's not the case. What, what he is saying is that after these things have happened, you're in an impure state, but after that passes, you are then able to go and offer your sacrifices, okay? But it's not sinful in and of itself to be unclean or impure, okay? Think about touching a dead body. If a family member dies, you're gonna have to prepare that body for burial. That's just part of natural life responsibilities. You have to do that. You can't just let bodies rot. That's not the the right thing to do. And so we know that's the case. God is not saying that coming in contact with a dead body makes you sinful, He's just talking about you being unclean. Now, why is this significant or why does this matter? And here's here's what a lot of people have have said. These types of things, right? Skin disease or or contact with dead, dead bodies or eating unclean animals, these types of things that make you unclean have the association of death, okay? These are human activities, right? Even reproducing right these are human activities but the problem with humans is that we are mortal and that we die and so the idea of these things brings with it this idea that you're carrying death with you and death cannot be in the presence of god because god is life god is immortal And so what a lot of people believe, the idea behind this impure impurity is you cannot come into God's presence carrying with you symbols of death, symbols of mortality. That would be the reason why these certain things make you in an impure state for a temporary amount of time. Okay, But it's not sinful in and of itself to do these things. That's an important distinction. And I think the reason that this is so specific, that it gets into all these different areas of life, is that God wants his people to understand that his holiness that he requires to be in his presence affects every aspect of our life, even down to the very things that we eat and prepare for meals. Every aspect of our life is affected by living in the presence of a holy God. And that is why a lot of these laws are so specific and they get into all these nitty-gritty details that for you and me, when we're reading it, we just get really confused and we don't really understand what the purpose of these might be. But God is making it clear that his holiness and our sinfulness are incompatible. And if we want to be a people who dwell in God's presence, every aspect of our life is going to be affected. Every aspect of our life is going to have to change so that we can live with a holy God. So then we get to the second second part. Uh, Chapters 18 through 20 deal with moral purity. There are three main things that he deals with in these chapters, the first being sexual purity. God cares about the way that we conduct ourselves sexually. There are a lot of things that are forbidden in these chapters. We're not going to read all of it, but you can. And one of the things he says is you cannot do these things because, well, first of all, he's, he's saying that they are not right, but also he says, because the nations around you are guilty of doing these things, and it's because of these things that I am driving them out from before you, okay? And so God is calling his people to a high standard of you do not be like the, all the nations that are around you. You are distinct. Again, remember, this idea of God is holy, And so he's calling his people to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinctly different from the nations that they are living around. Okay, so sexual purity matters to God, but also caring for the poor. Now, this is fascinating. Look with me at uh, chapter 19. And again, 19 verse 2 is a a huge verse. You want to underline that? That'll help you understand all all of Leviticus. Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now look over at at verse nine. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God." Now that to us seems really strange and really random. But what we see here is that the laws that God is giving shows us that he cares for the sojourner and the poor. God actually cares so much for the sojourner and the poor that he instructs his people not to glean your field all the way to the edges leave some grain on the edges of the field so that the poor and the sojourner can come and glean it themselves and have something to eat. He says, even the grapes that fall on the ground from your vineyard, leave them there. Let the poor and the sojourner come and get them themselves because more than economic profit, God cares for the poor and the sojourner. And he is instructing his people in these laws that he's giving them that they are to care for them as well. Okay, So God has a high sexual ethic for his people. God has a high uh, care for others, care for the poor, care for the sojourners. But also, God commands them to live with integrity. And you've got all these rules in chapter 20, which are uh, punishments for if if someone goes to a a medium or a necromancer, Uh, this would be like a fortune teller. That's what we would understand it as. And God is saying that you do not do these types of things, okay? You don't wrong your neighbor. You have you equal scales, right? You weigh things out with an honorable intention, okay? You do things with integrity. So God cares how his people act, and he cares how his people interact with, with one another. That's one of the things that's very important to him. And so that those are uh, the purity, the moral purity that God has called his people to. Now, we get to the pinnacle of the book, right? So all of these sections are kind of closer together until you get right to the middle of the book, which is Leviticus chapter 16 and 17. Now, chapters one through seven and all the sacrifices that we've already read about are pretty clear uh, that anytime somebody sins, a sacrifice must be made in order for that person to be made right, in order for the sin to be dealt with. But... What God knows is that not every wrong thing that happens is going to be noticed or not every wrong thing that happens, someone's going to bring a sacrifice to to make that right. And so once every single year, there is this feast known as the Day of Atonement. And what happens on the Day of Atonement is, well, we'll read it. This is Leviticus chapter 16. We'll start in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron Nope, actually, let's skip forward. Uh, verse four. And he shall put on the holy linen coat and have the linen undergarment and his body, and he shall wear the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take, from them, take them from the congregation of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for the Azazel. And Aaron the priest, Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell to the Lord and use it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell For Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, you've got two goats. One is a sin offering to the Lord. So just like the offerings we read about in chapters one through seven, this animal will be slaughtered. And what the priest is going to do is he's going to confess all the sins of Israel. So whether they were specifically dealt with by a specific sacrifice or whether they were not, he is symbolically going to place all the sins of Israel on this goat, and this goat will die in place of the people. But then there's a second goat, which is going to be known as the scapegoat. Maybe you've heard this before. And the scapegoat, they're going to do the same thing. He's going to, uh, the, the priest is going to confess all the sins of Israel and place his hands on this goat, and this goat is going to symbolically bear the sins and take them away into the wilderness. And so the second goat is not slaughtered. It does not die. It is released into the wilderness. And it is this picture that one goat died to pay for the sins of the people. Another goat symbolically takes the sins of the people and takes it far away. Now this is huge. Because if we are understanding the Bible as a whole and we are thinking with our gospel caps on, what does Jesus do for us? He is sacrificed in our place as a substitute, bearing our sins. And what does he do? He takes our sins away. As the psalmist says, he separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so the day of atonement, this feast that the Israelites are to uh, partake in every single year is a reminder of what God is doing forgiving his people and and removing their sins, but it also is pointing us forward to his son who's going to be the true sacrifice, who's going to be the true lamb who takes away our sins and who separates our sins from us. It is huge, it is awesome. And so this is why uh, the commentator at the beginning of that I I quoted at the beginning says that Leviticus is so important as we understand the whole Bible. It helps us understand the atoning work of Jesus as we understand all of the laws that God has given. So I know that's a lot. We have talked about a lot. It's it's kind of been some things that maybe you've never heard before. Uh, Maybe, you know, maybe you're still trying to make sense of it all. But the main thing you need to understand as you leave here is that God is holy. And unholy people cannot waltz into God's presence however they they want. Unholy people can only come to God and be in his presence the way he prescribes, which you and I know now is through his son Jesus. You cannot come to God by anyone except his son. But, before we leave, look, look at Numbers chapter one. So remember the issue at the, the very end of Exodus was that they had built the tabernacle and God's glory had descended and now it was filling the tabernacle and because of that, Moses could not enter. And so verse one of Leviticus one says that God spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. Moses is not in. Look at Numbers chapter one, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Leviticus worked. By keeping the law that God had given the people, Moses was now able to be in God's presence. And you and me, by looking to Jesus, by trusting in him as our true sacrificial lamb. We don't have to hear God from the tent of meeting. We get to hear God in the tent of meeting. We get to be with God. Sinful people like you and me have access to a holy God because he has made a way. And just like he made a way for the Israelites through the book of Leviticus, he has made a way for you and for me through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that it's through Jesus that we have access to the throne of grace. God, we thank you that Jesus has made it possible for us to have access to a holy God. And God, we thank you so much for the book of Leviticus and how it points us to the reality that sinful people cannot dwell with a holy God unless you make a way, and you did. God, we thank you for Leviticus and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Before we leave, we are gonna take the Lord's Supper.